Good morning, and thank you for tuning in again. I hope this video finds that you and your families are doing well. My name is David Creech, and I'm with the Northfield Boulevard Church of Christ in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. You can see the times of our services on the screen here, and you can also check out our website at www.godsredeemed.org. The times of our services are there, as well as important announcements regarding uh, in-vehicle and in-building services uh, during this pandemic. Today we're going to continue in our uh, study in the New Testament book of Acts, the, the Acts of the Apostles. This is lesson number eight, and we'll be covering chapter nine. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and be turning over to Acts chapter nine. Last week we talked about a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem and how that persecution scattered the Christians into the surrounding regions of Judea and northward into Samaria, fulfilling the words of Jesus in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, uh, that they would be witnesses of him in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Uh, we saw a little bit of that last part, to the end of the earth, last week when Philip preaches to a man of, of great authority who was from Ethiopia. Uh, that man believed and was baptized and went on his way rejoicing, as we see in Acts chapter 8 and verse 39. Uh, no doubt that man took Christianity with him all the way back to Ethiopia. Uh, before that, we saw Philip preaching in Samaria, where the people saw the things that Philip was doing. The Holy Spirit got their attention through the miracles he was working, and those miracles confirmed that what he was saying was the Word of God. There was great joy in the city, and many believed the things that Philip preached concerning the kingdom and the name of Jesus Christ, and they were baptized. We, we saw another man by the name of Simon. Uh, he was called Simon the Sorcerer because for years he had astonished the people with his, his magic. He, he claimed to be someone great, and the people thought he had the great power of God. Uh, in stark contrast to that was Philip, who worked miracles, not magic, uh, who did not claim that he was someone great, but that Jesus was someone great and who did have the great power of God through the Holy Spirit. Uh, even Simon himself believed after seeing the things that Philip was doing and was baptized. Uh, but then, poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity, Simon sinned. And we got a lesson from the Holy Spirit on what someone is expected to do when caught up in sin after they've been baptized. <clears throat> After all, if baptism washes away sin, and we'll talk about that some more today and in next week's lesson, then what is a person supposed to do if or when they sin after baptism? And well, recall from 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess that sin, and that letter was written to Christians, if we confess that sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us of that sin. And as a side note, <clears throat> some would say today that if, when we sin, we need to, to go confess that sin to a specific person, uh, like a priest, for instance. Well, <clears throat> uh, 
We don't find any command or even any example anywhere in the New Testament telling us to do that. There are different kinds of confession talked about in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 32 uh, and also verse 33 talks about the need to confess Jesus before men. Um, <clears throat> after all, if we deny Jesus, it says here that he will deny us before his Father in heaven. And uh, that would not work out well for us. Well, we've all already talked about the great confession, uh, the, the confession that the church would be built on, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Over in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, that talks about um, confession being a verbal confession. Confess with your mouth, and, and that that confession is unto salvation. James chapter 5 and verse 16 talks about the need to confess our, our trespasses, uh, our, our faults, our sins, not to a specific person, but to one another. And the reason for that is given right here, because by confessing our faults or our sins to one another, we can pray for one another, and it says that the that fervent prayer avails much. That's the language in the New King James Version. The English Standard Version says that prayer has great power. Uh, recall with Simon the Sorcerer and his sin with Peter, uh, Simon the sorcerer confessed that sin to Peter and asked Peter to pray for him. And then, of course, uh, back over in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, you know, talking about the need to confess our sins to, uh, again, not to a specific person like a priest, but to God, so that me, we may receive forgiveness of those sins. And lastly, from last week, we, we talked about the Ethiopian eunuch, and I already mentioned that. <clears throat> By way of a sort of an overview of today's lesson, and actually this week and next week will be in Acts chapter 9. We're going to talk first about the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Uh, now, by all accounts, uh, Saul of Tarsus was a monster. We closed out last week's lesson by sort of summarizing his resume. Uh, Acts 8.3 tells us that this was a man who was wreaking havoc on the church. We see from that passage that he went from house to house, dragging Christians from their homes, binding them, putting them in prison. And his, in his own words, over in Acts chapter 26, verses 10 and 11, even casting his vote uh, against them, for their deaths. And as if going from house to house weren't bad enough, this passage also tells us that, that he went from synagogue to synagogue, beating Christians that he found there, compelling them to blaspheme. And as you can see here in verse 11, it says that he, he was so enraged against Christians that he persecuted them even to foreign cities. And in fact, we're going to see in today's lesson that he is on his way to a foreign city, to the city of Damascus. That's about 130 to 140 miles north of Jerusalem in Syria. He's on a, uh, a search-and-destroy mission, if you will, to 
you know, to locate Christians, to bind them, and to take them back to Jerusalem to stand trial, and, and presumably to be put to death. Okay. Um, now think about that. 140 miles may not seem that far to us today. Uh, we could cover that distance in just a couple of hours on the interstate. But in those days, if you were traveling on foot, uh, about the best you could do was cover 20 miles in a day. Um, if you were in a carriage of some sort, you might be able to cover twice that distance in a single day. But, but we're talking about a journey that would have taken anywhere between four and, and most likely about seven or eight days, you know, one way. Just to search out Christians and take them bound back to Jerusalem. Uh, as we stated last week, that sounds like a wonderful resume for a gospel preacher, doesn't it? But you know what? We're going to see in today's lesson that something incredible happens to this monster. And he becomes a force to be reckoned with in the service of Jesus Christ. This man is held up by the Holy Spirit as perhaps the perfect example of how someone can be zealous toward God and yet be zealously wrong. And, and Saul of Tarsus, who would later be called Paul the Apostle, spends the rest of his life taking the message of Christ, the gospel, to the Gentiles, taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. Even today, Paul speaks out to us from the pages of the New Testament as the, the voice of the Holy Spirit in 13, possibly 14 of the 27 books. Uh, he does that in epistles or letters written either to specific churches or to the churches of a region or to individuals. And by volume, Paul himself wrote almost 30% of the entire New Testament. What force could transform this man from the monster he was into the missionary he became? And we'll talk about that today. After that, we'll see there are multiple plots by the Jews to kill Saul of Tarsus. Uh, we'll see Peter again, this time traveling to a city called Lydda, uh, not to be confused with Lydia, which is the name of a person we'll see over in uh, Acts chapter 16. And we didn't mention this in last week's class, but... Um, Acts chapter 8, verses 39 and 40. Let's just turn over to that. Acts chapter 8, verses 39 and 40. After the Ethiopian eunuch is baptized, it says that the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away. Now, we don't know exactly what that means, except that the eunuch didn't see him anymore. The, the eunuch goes on his way rejoicing, and in verse 40 there, we see Philip in a, a city called Azotus. And passing through, it says, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. Now let's just kind of take a look at that. And let me blow this up so you can see it a little bit better. Uh, we can see from the green line on the map here, from, from this road that led to Gaza. Remember last week we had Jerusalem, and then we had over here Gaza, and then this in green we have this, this road that led to Gaza. 
and it says all the cities between Azotus, which is right here, and Caesarea, which is up here. And that would have included the city of Lydda. And, and that Philip, um, uh, it's highly likely that, that the word was well received here in Lydda and that Philip sent word back to the apostles in Jerusalem. Uh, let me jump back over to the class slides. And we see in Acts chapter 9, verse 32 and following, um, we see Peter then going to Lydda to visit the saints there. To do as the apostles have done previously and in other places like Samaria, where, where local churches, uh, isolated groups of believers were popping up, and, and that was to lay their hands on believers to impart gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, while in Lydda, a couple of things happen. Um, a man by the name of Aeneas, who had been paralyzed and, and bedridden for eight years, is completely healed. And we see in verse 35 that Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Now, who was Sharon and what makes her special that she is mentioned here? So stay tuned for the answer to that. And finally, disciples from Joppa send for Peter because a faithful servant of the Lord there named Tabitha, and Luke points out that her name in Greek was Dorcas, um, she has fallen ill and died. So, so while in Joppa, there at the end of Acts chapter 9, we see a couple of things happen. Uh, Tabitha is raised from the dead. Uh, Peter stays there in Joppa in the house of Simon the Tanner, which is where he is when he sees this, this great vision that we'll talk about in chapter 10, and, and also where he is, uh, where he's located when summoned to Caesarea to meet with Cornelius. So let's kind of drill down into some, some more of the details of chapter 9. Uh, as Acts chapter 9 opens up, uh, you know, we see Saul of Tarsus still breathing threats uh, and murder against the disciples of the Lord. We, we already mentioned how uh, later in the book of Acts, Saul of Tarsus, who, who by that time has become Paul the Apostle, is retelling his conversion story. So if we take what we see here in Acts 9 and we combine it with what Paul tells us in Acts 22 and Acts 26, we get a much more complete uh, picture of, of what is really going on here. And, and one other place that we can get additional information about Paul's conversion and particularly the period immediately following his conversion is from Paul's letter to the churches of the region known as Galatia over there in Galatians chapter 1, verses 13 through 24. I'm going to just read through that real quickly. Uh, it says, <clears throat> uh, For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it, and I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son to me, 
that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed, before God, I do not lie. Afterward, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they were hearing only. He who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God in me. From this set of passages, uh, Paul confirms in verse 13 that he tried to destroy the church, that he persecuted it beyond measure. Paul again mentions in verse 14 how he was you know, not just zealous, but exceedingly zealous. We already mentioned how Paul is held up as the perfect example of someone that can be zealous, even exceedingly zealous toward God and still be zealously wrong. But here we also see that after his conversion in Damascus, uh, rather than return to Jerusalem and, and meet with the apostles, he goes off into Arabia for a time, then returns to Damascus again before going to Jerusalem. Uh, in fact, in verses 18 and 19, it tells us that it would be three years before Paul returned to Jerusalem, uh, at which point he saw only Peter and James, the Lord's brother. Uh, even then, he only remained in Jerusalem, it says in verse 18, for 15 days. Much of that time apparently spent with Peter. <clears throat> and then afterward, we see him in verse 21, um, in the regions of Syria and, um, and Cilicia. And, and by the way, uh, recall that Damascus was in Syria, and also his hometown of Tarsus was in Cilicia. Finally, in, in verses 22 and 23, tell us that if many in the churches of Judea had seen Paul in the street somewhere, they, they would not have known who he was, um, that he was unknown by face. But, but it seems that everyone knew of his reputation, both as one who previously tried to destroy the church and now one who preached the faith. The monster had indeed become the missionary. Uh, before we continue with Paul's conversion story, I think it's important that we take another one of my detours. Um, this detour is related to something that we see uh, right here in this set of passages. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 19 says, uh, where, where Paul refers to James, the Lord's brother, as an apostle. Uh, and let me begin this tour by asking a thought-provoking question question, and then we'll go about trying to answer it. Uh, the question is the same as the one on the slide here. Uh, how many apostles were there? Let me give you a moment to think about that, and I'll ask it again. How many apostles were there? Do you have an answer yet? My initial answer would be, that depends it depends on what you mean by the word apostle. 
The Greek word that is translated as apostle in the English language is apostolos, which means messenger or ambassador or one who is sent forth with orders. Like a lot of other words, Greek or English, we, we lean heavily on the context to, um, to give us clues as to the meaning of the word. In the Bible, we lean heavily on the immediate context, or when the immediate context is not sufficient, then the greater context of Scripture. Now, keep that in mind as we answer this question. Now, someone might immediately answer our question, how many apostles were there, with the number 12. Now, raise your hand if you said 12. Raise them high. Okay. You know, you'd be exactly right if someone is asking about the number of original disciples that Jesus chose as his messengers. Over in Luke chapter 6 and verse 13, uh, Jesus uh, called disciples to himself, and it says, from them he chose 12 whom he also named apostles. However, recall that one of the original 12, Judas, killed himself. At the end of Acts 1, we saw Matthias chosen to replace him. So that's a total of 13 apostles, isn't it? We, we already referred to Paul the apostle, who, as we'll see shortly, was was chosen by Jesus, but at a different time and in a different way from the original 12. We're going to see here in Acts 9 that he will be sent forth by Jesus as a messenger to the Gentiles. So now we're up to 14 apostles, aren't we? <laughs> and, <clears throat> and, and back over in uh, Galatians chapter 1 and verse 19, Paul refers to James, the brother of Jesus, as an apostle. Now, of the original 12 apostles selected by Jesus, there were two men named James. First, there was James, who was the brother of John. Both James and John were apostles. Uh, they were also known as the sons of Zebedee. And then there was James, a son of Alphaeus. But this James, the brother of Jesus, the one spoken here in uh, Galatians 1.19, was not even a believer during Jesus' lifetime. Um, <clears throat> just to muddy the waters a little further, if we look at Acts chapter 14 and verse 14, Barnabas is referred to as an apostle along with Paul. So now we're up to, what, 16 apostles? And it could be argued that there were others. Paul referred to Epaphroditus over in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 25 as an apostle. <clears throat> now, most translations use the word messenger here, just as my New King James Version does. But it's the same Greek word used for the other apostles. It's the word apostolos. So again, how many apostles were there? Well, it depends. It depends on what you mean by the word apostle. There is certainly a sense that we are all apostolos, that we are all messengers or should be messengers of the good news of the gospel. The, the important distinction here is that certain disciples were chosen specifically by Jesus 
and called apostles for that reason. We know that Matthias was chosen to replace Judas, and then those 12, the 12 that included Matthias, were baptized with the Holy Spirit and given power. Power that included the ability to lay their hands on believers and impart gifts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and as we just mentioned in our overview, Paul will also be chosen by Christ as a messenger to the Gentiles. And we will see later that he has the power to lay his hands on believers and impart gifts of the Holy Spirit. So <clears throat> if you had any questions about that, I hope this explanation clears things up a little. Like I said before, sometimes we have to rely on context to know which kind of apostle we're talking about. But know that those 12 apostles from Acts 2 and Paul are the only apostles that can lay their hands on believers and impart gifts of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes we'll see a distinction made between the two kinds of apostles with the, the capitalized word apostles referring to those specifically selected by Christ and the lowercase word apostles referring to, to other disciples that were selected by men and sent forth for some special purpose. Uh, just note that, that that is not a Bible distinction, but one you will sometimes see used in order to help clarify. <clears throat> All right, back to the conversion of Saul in Acts chapter 9, verses uh, 1 through 19. We, we already talked about how the details of Saul's conversion are spread out between Luke's telling of the story here in Acts 9 and Paul's own words in Acts 22, where he's, he's addressing an angry mob of Jews, and in Acts 26, where he's addressing King Agrippa, and then Galatians 1 in his letter to the churches of Galatia. And, and what I'm going to do is just kind of try to seam all of that together. And so, so when we do that, what we, what we see is Saul approaching the city of Damascus in Acts chapter 9 and verse 3. Now, both Acts 22 and Acts 26 add that it was midday when this happened, or about noon. And think about that. This would be the point where the sun is highest in the sky and where the sun is going to be its brightest. Okay, <clears throat> It goes on to say in verse 3 that this, there was this light from heaven that shone around him. Now, Acts 22 calls it a great light. And Acts 26 says that it was brighter than the sun and and also that it shone not only on Saul but also on those that journeyed with him the the word sudden there in, in verse 3 indicates that this this great light this this light that was brighter than the sun appeared abruptly rather than kind of fading in over time verse 4 says that he fell to the ground Acts 26 adds that they all fell to the ground. Uh, Saul hears a voice from heaven there in verse 4. And, and uh, in verse 7, it says that the men who were with him were speechless and that they also heard a voice. Now, hold on to that for a minute. Uh, they heard a voice but did not see anyone. Uh, Acts 22 adds that the others saw the light and were afraid. Uh, Acts 26 adds that the voice Saul heard was in the Hebrew language. 
Now, an interesting note here in, in the King James versions, now that's both the old and the new, Acts 22 says that those who were with him did not hear the voice. Now, now, how is it that right here in Acts chapter 9 and verse 7, the men did hear a voice, but then over in Acts chapter 22 and verse 9, they did not hear the voice? Uh, do we have a contradiction here? Uh, a lot of the critics of the Bible would point to these two passages and say, yes, that, that's an example of a contradiction in the Bible. But, but is it? Uh, in, in order for something to be uh, a violation of the law of non-contradiction, it, it must be true and not true at the same time and in the same respect or the same relationship. Something cannot both exist and not exist at the same time. But it is possible for me to hear and not hear at the same time because the word hear has different meanings. It has different meanings in English, and it had different meanings in Greek, different relationships, if you will. You know, my wife Linda might ask me, did, did you just hear what I said? And, and I might answer, yes. You know, after all, the sound came forth from her mouth and entered my ears. My eardrums began to vibrate and transmitted those vibrations to my brain as electrical impulses and all that registered as sound. So, so yes, indeed, I, I heard what she said, but I didn't really hear what she said. Now, she's gotten a little smarter about that. She'll ask me now, you know, did you listen to what I just said? Did you understand what I was just talking about? And, and well, now she's got me in a pickle as I desperately try to replay the sound that my brain was picking up and make sense of it. And if I take too long to answer, well, <laughs> she knows, she knows, and, and I just have to hear it all over again, and this time actually listen or understand. Now, <clears throat> there in Acts chapter 22 and verse 9, most other translations use the word understand there, so it's a little more obvious what is meant. The, the inescapable conclusion, though, is that Saul heard the voice and understood it, whereas the men who were with him heard the voice but did not understand it. In, in that last sense, they did not hear. Uh, we go back over to Acts chapter 9, uh, right around verse 5. <clears throat> uh, we learn that this voice is the voice of Jesus. And what does Jesus say to Saul? He asks, why are you persecuting me? In all three accounts, Saul asks, who are you, Lord? And the reply is, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And in Acts chapter 9 and Acts 26, both add, uh, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. You see that there in my New King James Version. Some translations leave that last part off in Acts 9. Um, Acts 9 and verse uh, 5 there. Uh, but it is definitely over in Acts chapter 26. And, and you know, that seems like an odd thing to say, doesn't it? Uh, what is a goad? And what does it mean to kick against one? 
I'm sure you've at least heard that word used before, maybe in a slightly different sense, but we might say, don't ever let your friends goad you into doing something you'll regret. So in that sense, the word goad means to tease or to to coerce someone into doing something. And we would call that peer pressure. Well, the word goad also refers to an instrument with the same purpose. A, a goad is used to prod or coerce cattle or maybe even some other domesticated animals into doing something, into going somewhere that we want them to go. In New Testament times, a goad may have been as simple as a long stick with something sharp on the end to sort of you know, prick or sting, to get the cattle's attention so that they would do what the, what the owner wanted them to do in order to avoid getting pricked again. Um, nowadays, goads are often electric and they, they deliver a shock with the same effect. The older King James Version says it is hard for you to kick against the pricks. Um, and the New Living Translation says it is useless for you to fight against my will. Okay, so think about the futility of kicking against a sharp object, though. I mean, to kick, to kick against a sharp object is to cause that sharp object to do the very damage that we're seeking to avoid. So notice in verse 6 what Saul says. Lord, what do you want me to do? We talked in an earlier lesson about how the word do has become almost a dirty word in religious circles, as if by doing something, we're trying to earn our way to heaven. Excuse me. By doing something, we're trying to earn our way to heaven. But, but we pointed out that every single time someone asked what they needed to do, they were told what they needed to do, and they did it. The Bible calls that obedience. And in a previous lesson, we also talked about the absolute necessity of obedience. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, recall that Peter preached that sermon, and men were cut to the heart by the gospel message. They asked, what must we do? And Peter told them what they needed to do. Uh, here, Saul asked the Lord himself, what do you want me to do? I think it's interesting here that the Lord answers Saul by saying in verse 6, Arise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told what you must do. Uh, why didn't Jesus just tell Saul everything he needed to do right then and there? Why go through all of this so that someone else could tell Saul what he needed to do? Well, I'm reminded that over in 1 Corinthians, I don't have a bookmark, so let me turn over to that. 1 Corinthians 1, 21 uh, tells us that it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. So, so many times we see God using men as instruments of salvation. That's all part of his amazing plan. And let's flip back over to Acts chapter uh, 9 and verse uh, 8. Uh, it tells us that he 
rose up. You remember he had previously fallen to the ground. He opened his eyes and then he realizes that he could no longer see. He's blind and the men that were with him uh, had to lead him by hand into Damascus. Verse 9, we learn that he was three days without sight. And during that time, he, he didn't eat anything and he didn't drink anything. We see some additional words over in Acts chapter 26, verses 16 through 18. Additional words from Jesus that we don't see in Acts 9. Where Jesus says, But arise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles, to whom I now send you, to open their eyes in order for them to, uh, to, turn, to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. All right, so flipping back over to uh, Acts chapter 9, verses 10 and 11. Um, we see that Ananias, this man by the name of Ananias, has a vision. The Lord tells him uh, what street and what house to go to in order to find Saul of Tarsus. The, the Lord tells him that Saul is praying and that Saul has also seen a vision, of, a vision of one coming to lay hands on him so that he might receive his sight. Ananias' reply in verses 13 and 14 are, are almost comical in a way. Uh, I think we can understand his hesitation, but it's almost as if Ananias is saying, Lord, do you know who this man is? <laughs> uh, the Lord doesn't mince any words with Ananias. He says in verse 15, go. Go, for he is a chosen vessel. And in verse 17, we see that, that Ananias does as he is commanded. He lays hands on Saul, and Saul receives his sight. So Ananias has apparently had the hands of the apostles laid on him at some point, and he was given the gift of healing. That's, that's one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit that's listed in 1 Corinthians 12, and we already talked about in previous lessons. Um, as Saul is healed, uh, verse 18 says that there's something like scales that fall from Saul's eyes. This is the only place where this Greek word, uh, translated in, in pretty much all of the, tr the translations as scales. It's the only place where this word is used. Uh, I guess what we often picture in our minds is something like fish scales, perhaps, but the, the Greek word here simply refers to something that flakes or peels away. So we'll just kind of leave it at that. All right. <clears throat> Also in verse 17, we're given, we're given two reasons for Ananias coming to Saul. One was to lay hands on him so that he might receive his sight. And the other was so Saul could be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, as far as Ananias laying his hands on him that he might receive his sight, well, well we've already talked about that. But the other one, that, that he might be filled with the Holy Spirit, that's been a subject of much debate. And one thing I am sure of is that Ananias did not lay his hands on Saul and impart to him gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now, how do I know that? 
because Ananias was not one of those 12 apostles that had been given the power by the Holy Spirit to do that. There are about 15 instances in the New King James Version where passages talk about someone being filled with the Spirit uh, or filled with the Holy Spirit. This, this is an expression used only by Luke you know, in both of his books, Luke and Acts, with one exception. Paul uses it in his letter to the church at Ephesus. We'll look at that in a minute. But <clears throat> let's look at some of these accounts, kind of get an idea uh, being filled with the Holy Spirit. Over in Luke chapter 1 and verse 15, we see John the Baptist. We see that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And in Luke chapter 1 and verse 41, we see Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, being filled with the Holy Spirit. And then in Luke 1 uh, verse 67, that his father Zacharias would be filled with the Holy Spirit. Luke chapter 4 and verse 1 talks about Jesus being filled with the Holy Spirit. This is prior to him being um, tempted in the wilderness. <clears throat> Most of the time in the book of Acts, this expression, being filled with the Spirit or filled with the Holy Spirit, is reserved for the apostles. But <clears throat> over in Acts chapter 5, uh, Acts 13 verse 52, I don't have that one bookmarked, Acts 13 and verse 52. Uh, this is when Paul and Barnabas arrive in Iconium. Give you a little more context there. It says that the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And finally, and this is the one time that Paul uses this, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. Where Paul says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Um, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. Uh, incidentally, there's a, a similar passage over in Colossians chapter 1 and verse... Uh, excuse me, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16. And I also don't have that one bookmarked. Here you go. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Now, if we put both of those passages together, we, we can see that there is a correlation between being filled with the Holy Spirit and let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. In other words, the Spirit dwells within us as the Word dwells within us. And, and think about that. If, if the role of the Holy Spirit was to reveal truth, and if we take that truth and we internalize it, then we are filled with the Holy Spirit. The bottom line is, I, I don't know exactly what is meant by Saul being filled with the Holy Spirit there in Acts chapter 9 and verse 17. But I do know that there are ways that could happen that didn't require some sort of gift being imparted through the laying on of Ananias' hands. And I only bring that up because some use the argument that Ananias wasn't an apostle, and yet he was able to impart gifts of the Holy Spirit. 
And that's just not the case. I don't, I don't see that here. I, I want to close today's lesson with the words of Ananias right after Saul's sight is restored. There in Acts chapter 22, verses 14 through 16. Actually, I need to jump over to that. Acts 22, verses 14 through 16. Ananias says to Saul, The God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Well, we're out of time for today. Thank you for watching or listening, whichever the case may be. For next week, I want you to read, and if necessary, reread this passage here in Acts chapter 22, verses 14 through 16. Because next week, Lord willing, we're going to answer the all-important question. At what point in Saul's conversion, um, the entire chapter 9 that we've been looking through there, was was Saul actually saved? And our answer to that question may very well be the most important answer we can come up with in our lifetime. Thank you.